Howdy. Before we want to begin today, we just want to say thanks to everybody who's started listening to the podcast because of Texas Rising. And for the long-term listeners, we salute you as well. If you want to support the show, you can always go to patreon.com slash Podcast and sign up to be a patron and help us out. Coming soon, we're going to be doing in-depth episodes on all the characters that the History Channel got wrong in Texas Rising. And without further ado, here's the show. There's nothing quite so gripping as velour. (laughs) (laughs) Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He heard of Houston and Austin, so to the Texas Plains he just had to go, where freedom was fighting another foe, and they needed him at the Alamo. Davy, Davy Crockett, the man who don't know fear. This week, we talk about the final days and lasting legacy of Texas legend Davy Crockett. But first, what's the deepest you've ever been in Texas? Well... I've been down in Natural Bridge Caverns, which, as far as show caves go in Texas, that's the deepest one. That one goes down about 76 meters. Um, I don't know that any other cave you can go into goes that deep. Well, I've only been deep in the heart of Texas. (laughs) (laughs) One time, I was lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut. (laughs) Yeah, it feels really deep when you go down into the uh, the dart station under City Place. But yeah. that only goes down about 33 meters, which is about half as far, less than half as far as uh, Natural Bridge. Well, I've been to Hong Kong, so technically I've been completely under Texas on the other side of the planet. <laughs> but that's, that's maybe a technicality. That's yeah, that's cheating, yeah. I In 1835, David Crockett, famed frontiersman and congressman from Tennessee, lost his bid for re-election, having run afoul of Andrew Jackson's political machine. He told his erstwhile constituents that he was, quote, done with politics for the present, and that they might all go to hell and I would go to Texas. Texas would truly be Crockett's destiny. As early as 1834, he had been writing to his friends that if Jackson's protege, Martin Van Buren, were elected president, he wanted to go to the new lands in Texas. After his failed election, it was clear that Crockett really did intend to head that way. Texans had begun their revolt against Mexico that October, and Davy longed to at least take advantage of the political situation to snatch up some good land. After clearing up some personal affairs in Tennessee, Davy headed south and west. He promised his family he would come for them soon enough, just as he had done many times before. His youngest child, Matilda, remembered the last time she saw her father. Quote, He was dressed in his hunting suit, wearing a coonskin cap, and carried a fine rifle presented to him by friends in Philadelphia. He seemed very confident the morning he went away that he would soon have us all join him in Texas. Crockett encouraged a number of young neighbors to join him in his adventure. Ben and Henry McCulloch were admirers, and they promised to meet Crockett in Nacogdoches, a settlement in East Texas, after a hunting expedition in Arkansas. Over the next few weeks, he traveled west with a party of men that numbered from 3 to 30 at various points along the way, stopping and giving speeches. When they reached Texas, 
Crockett was so awestruck by the beauty of the prairie that he wrote, O God, what a world of beauty hast thou made for man, and yet how poorly does he requite thee for it. He does not even repay thee with gratitude. Crockett arrived in Nacogdoches in January 1836. On January 14th, he and his party signed an oath to the Provisional Government of Texas, lasting for six months. He wrote, quote, I have taken the oath of government and have enrolled my name as a volunteer and will set out for the Rio Grande in a few days with the volunteers from the United States. Each man was promised about 4,600 acres, which is 19 square kilometers of land as payment. Crockett arrived at San Antonio de Bejar on February 6, accompanied by an old pirate, a young Indian, a gambler, and a bee hunter. Wait, wait, wait. How do you hunt? I know this joke. <laughs> How do you hunt bees? I don't know. You use what kind of tiny, rifle do you use to tiny, hunt bees? Tiny, tiny rifle. I don't know. All you need to do is add a priest and a rabbi, and we got something. <laughs> well, the gates were flung open, and the motley band of volunteers was welcomed with shouts and cheers. Jim Bowie welcomed Crockett personally and took him to meet the mayor, Don Erasmo Seguin. Bowie and William Travis, the commanders of the garrison at the Alamo, requested that Crockett and his men join their small force. Santa Ana's troops were approaching quickly, and every able hand would be needed to defend the fort. Travis and Bowie had been at odds over who should lead the Texan forces, but both graciously offered overall command to the elder statesman from Tennessee. Crockett just as graciously deferred, asking only to be a simple private, though they continued to rely upon him heavily for advice and leadership with the men. On February 23rd, Santa Ana's forces arrived and laid siege to the fortress. Crockett wrote in his diary during the 13-day siege. One entry describes the peril they were in. It said, I had a little sport this morning before breakfast. The enemy had planted a piece of ordnance within gunshot of the fort during the night, and the first thing in the morning they commenced a brisk cannonade, point-blank against the spot where I was snoring. I turned out pretty smart and mounted the rampart. The gun was charged again. A fellow stepped forth to touch her off, but before he could apply the match, I let him have it, and he keeled over. A second stepped up, snatched the match from the hand of the dying man, but the juggler, who had followed me, handed me his rifle, and the next instant the Mexican was stretched on the earth beside the first. A third came up to the cannon. My companion handed me another gun, and I fixed him off in like manner. A fourth, then a fifth seized the match, who both met with the same fate. Then the whole party gave it up as a bad job and hurried off to the camp, leaving the cannon ready charged where they had planted it. I came down, took my bitters, and went to breakfast. Crockett personally led several excursions outside the walls, most famously to burn down some shacks, which the Mexican forces were using to set up artillery and sniper positions. On March 3rd, Crockett also went out with three men to find James Fannin's force from Goliad. They were supposed to be on their way to relieve the Alamo. They found a group of men who were only 20 miles away and guided them into the fortress, but the rest of the force never arrived. Crockett was allegedly one of the men who carried Jim Bowie's cot across the fabled line in the sand on March 5th. Throughout the siege, Travis ordered most of the men to not fire at the Mexican troops to conserve ammunition. Crockett and his men were exempted from this order since they Travis placed Crockett in command of the dirt palisade that defended the gap between the mission chapel and the walls, as he and his men were the ablest shots and the most reliable fighters. On March 6th, Santa Ana launched an all-out attack on the fortress just before dawn. After an hour of heavy fighting, the battle was over, and Davy Crockett was dead, along with all the other defenders. But how exactly did he die? His death is one of the most controversial and disputed in history. 
Travis's slave, Joe, and Susanna Dickinson, wife of one of the defenders, claim they saw Crockett lying dead and mutilated, surrounded by the bodies of a dozen Mexican corpses. Other accounts, some from Tejano non-combatants, as well as Mexican officers, stated that between five and seven Texans surrendered and were immediately executed on orders from Santa Ana. A number of these accounts, mostly from Mexican officers, stated that Crockett was among those executed. The most famous account of Crockett's death, written by Captain Jose Enrique de la Pina, described in detail how Mexican General Castrillon tried to convince Santa Ana to spare the famous American's life, but this only served to enrage the dictator. Pina's narrative said that Crockett and the other Texans were tortured before being killed, but they all accepted their fate with dignity and honor. Regardless of the details, David Crockett, the Lion of the West, lost the battle and his life but gained immortality. No one knew it at the time, but the Texas Revolution was effectively won that day. Rallying to the cry of, Remember the Alamo, remember Goliad, the Texans would soon defeat Santa Ana and make good their claim to independence from Mexico. Davy Crockett's legend was only getting started, though, and Texas would continue to hold sway on his family, even as his fame grew over the years. News spread quickly in the form of rumors, but little in the way of real details made their way back east. Several months after the battle, Elizabeth finally learned the full story of what happened to her husband. She received his watch from a man named Isaac Jones, to whom Crockett had sold, in order to pay for some of his expenses. It was the only thing she had left of her husband, as his body had been burned along with all the other defenders at the Alamo. Perhaps the strangest twist to this story is that Elizabeth and her family did, in fact, leave home and move to Texas. Elizabeth's son Robert from her first marriage moved to Texas first in 1838 and joined the Republic of Texas Army. Elizabeth herself received a pension from the Republic and then later from the state of Texas for several years and in 1854 finally received the land that was promised to Crockett. She settled near what is today Granbury, south of Fort Worth. She wore black for the rest of her life, but took great pride in entertaining folks with her stories of her legendary husband. She died in 1860 and was buried near her farm. Crockett's oldest son, John Wesley, stayed behind in Tennessee. He ran for his father's seat in Congress, defeating Adam Huntsman the next year. He later served in the Tennessee Assembly and eventually became a merchant and newspaperman in New Orleans. In the years after Crockett's death, his fame continued to grow. He was already one of the most famous men in America. His book, filled with exaggerated stories about his life, was wildly popular. It was adapted into a hit play, The Lion of the West. The, na- the main character, Nimrod Wildfire, was a larger-than-life frontiersman who was part tribute to and part caricature of the real David Crockett. After Crockett's death, the play became even more popular, even being performed for Queen Victoria of England. Crockett became one of the earliest heroes of the dime novels, which remained popular up until the rise of the Old West outlaw in the years after the Civil War. In late 1954, Crockett's legend became reignited when the TV miniseries Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, became the biggest hit in Disney's history. The series starred Fess Parker as Davy Crockett and Buddy Ebsen as his best friend George. The three parts of the series covered his early life, his days in Congress, and his fall at the Alamo, which seems logical. Uh, this was followed by two yeah, other I mean, How else would you divide it up except in those three parts? Yeah, <laughs> that's how we would do it if we were going to do such a thing. Um, <laughs> this series was followed up by two additional series that were set earlier in his life. 
Historical accuracy, of course, was secondary to the fun and energetic telling of the story. The series had a catchy theme song, The Ballad of Davy Crockett, which became a number one hit record, and you've heard our good friend Scott sing all three verses for you. Soon, well, There's nearly... actually like 12 verses. Yeah, there's like 12 verses. This is a long <laughs> song. All right, so we're going to do a 12-part series on Davy Crockett. <laughs> Moving yeah. forward. Uh, soon, nearly every kid in America would wear a coonskin cap in imitation of their hero. By the end of 1955, Americans had purchased over $300 million worth of Davy Crockett merchandise, which would be $2.6 billion in today's money. In the years since, Crockett has remained a popular figure in America's imagination and is still today considered a beloved Texan. Author Michael Wallace sums up the contribution of Davy Crockett to the evolution of Texas in his book, David Crockett, The Lion of the West. He says, Crockett's death sums up the single most important aspect of his brief stay in Texas. His contribution to the Lone Star State resulted not so much from how he lived, but how he died. And... There was the David Crockett of historical fact, and there is the Davy Crockett of our collective imagination. The first was a man who led a most interesting and colorful life. The other is the American myth. Both Crockett and the Alamo remain ensnared in clouds of myth. So, raise your hand if you had a coonskin cap when you were a kid. I had one. Yeah, I did not, but... Yeah, I did you also one of never those went cool to Six Flags. Pop guns that you, yeah, you, you know. Yeah, you to Six Flags. <laughs> I still haven't been yeah. to Six Flags. That's irrelevant. Yeah. Let's talk about a great Texas okay. and American okay. hero. Oh, I was saying, I did not, but I did have one of those, like, old school, like, cork pop guns on a string, you know, that I got <laughs> yeah. at I the Alamo coon- because <laughs> it was cheaper than the coonskin cap in the gift shop. Yeah, I had a coonskin cap that I got at the Wonder World gift shop in San Marcos. Mm. And um, my grandmother made uh, my brother and I, and I think my cousin Troy, we all had our own custom uh, pretend buckskin outfits, uh, except they were made of velour. Um, But we had the fringe and the coonskin caps, and they were all different colors so we could tell them apart. There's nothing quite so gripping as velour. Well, I remember like like uh, a lot of the Disney shows that my mom grew up with, like you know Swiss Family Robinson, the Fest Parker, mm-hmm. Davy Crockett's, uh, you know Mary Poppins. Uh, watching all of those old shows because a lot of that stuff kind of we got there was a lot of reruns that kind of started showing when we were kids. And I remember like oh. You know, this is Ren Tin Tin. I remember this when I was a kid. Or here's here's Fess Parker as Davy Crockett, and he's amazing. And I think it was a very early impression because even, you know, we talked about the John Waynes, the Alamo, and his portrayal of Crockett. We talked about these other portrayals of the man. But for some reason, there's something about, there's just something about Fess Parker in that role that that's, you know, if I close my eyes, that's a lot of the Davy Crockett I picture. And I don't know why that is. Yeah, it's funny because I don't, really have a visual image of Davy Crockett because most of my fascination with him as a character was all in books and stories that mm-hmm. I read in school. I don't think I ever even saw the uh, the TV show until I was much older. Yeah, my, mine came from mine came from the old, the Classics Illustrated book on Davy Crockett's life. I remember that vividly as as uh, 
the first impression of Davy Crockett that I had, but I think probably the second one was the John Wayne the Alamo movie because my dad liked that movie and my grand- grandfather liked that movie and uh, um, of course we've talked about that movie. We talked about John Wayne's portrayal of Davy Crockett. Um, the interesting thing I think is that you know we kind of skip over. Davy Crockett was still a hugely popular character, even during the Old West time period and even during the turn of the century. I recently learned that there was a what was called the Daniel Boone David Croc- Davy Crockett Society at the turn of the century. And these were um, East Coast uh, Ivy Leaguers who liked to dress up as these characters and buckskins and coonskins. And Teddy Roosevelt was a member of this society, and they emulated these uh, and idealized these frontiersmen, the frontier ideal that Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett represented. So, I mean, he captured the imagination of generations and generations. Right. But that that 1955, the Disney show, really it like crystallized. I think for for the you know the, the baby well, boomers it, that this well, is Davy Crockett. You take an amazing story and you're presenting it in a new medium, and you're just and you're reaching a new generation. Of kids. Right. Uh, also, not sponsored by the show, but new Star Wars coming this Christmas. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, <laughs> no, I think what, what what I think is really interesting about this story that's cool is is that you're dealing with like like you talk like there's the scene from the Alamo where they show up in the town and the the John Wayne's the Alamo. Which, uh, but they show up in the in the town and they're they're drinking and they're they're laughing and there's all these kind of wild Tennessee characters. I think we've seen from earlier episodes that Tennessee was full of these crazy characters. But in addition to that, when you look at like, you know, well, some of these guys. Well, we're going to go on a little hunting trip in Arkansas. Then we're going to make a turn and we're going to just going to come on down to Texas and we're going to whoop the Mexicans and then we'll you know pick up some land and then we'll be on our way. And there's just a, like a, ain't no big deal. Like, you know, this is like a, yeah, well, a weekend fishing I mean, trip is how they, the, it's almost characterized in the tone of, of the approach these guys took to what they were getting into. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've talked about the early and middle parts of Davy Crockett's life and it was just the way he lived his life, right? It's, he was a wilderness mm-hmm. survivor and he was, he thrived in that environment. So the idea of just picking up and heading west because that's where the fighting was and he could get some land well that's the thing to do so i'm gonna go do it yeah and he wasn't alone i mean he's hardly alone in that it was yeah, it was no, typical not at all yeah and that, I, I mean everyone went west that's in hw brand's book uh lone star rising you talked about that that was part of the western culture was just to pick up and head west because that was where the new land was and that was where the not only cheap land but the free land was is you can just seize it and take it and squat there. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing really interesting about this too is is that you know uh, Davy Crockett's stand at the Alamo, what he brought, the gravitas he brought, and the attention he brought to that, I think in some ways probably elevated the Alamo. I mean, there's historically why the Alamo is more elevated than what happened at Goliad. But I think his gravitas and being there really did bring a lot of of light onto that. And and I think it's just a, another case of how Santa Ana just did not, how he mismanaged that campaign and mismanaged interacting with these 
Texans, these people that came. You know, he could have shown mercy, yeah. had a had a sit down and said, look, just go home to Tennessee. You know, could have sent him home to Tennessee and, you know, and kind of just broke up the band and it would have fizzled out, I think, in the way a lot of the other early earlier Texas revolutions did. But it's it right. Didn't. Think of the. Think of the propaganda coup that he would have had to have a you know a former congressman as well as you know Jim Jim Bowie wasn't really in a position to resist very much. They yeah. could have taken him prisoner too, and you've got two of the most famous men in the West and in America that you've got prisoners. But he didn't. He wanted to kill them. <laughs> and I think that's the that's that's the thing of it. And you know you look at uh, at his, his such an amazing story of his life. I mean, it's the mm-hmm classical just like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you know the sky is the limit and all of these men really kind of fit that bill in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. yeah and i think it's interesting also you know we talk about the myth and you know how he was bigger than life and how in reality he was not really that far off from a lot of the tall tales Mm -hmm. but along with that you know the reality is that he was also a father that was away from home a lot and so, but again, that's kind of a sign of the times. The The men went off to do fighting and, you know, claiming of land, and the older children would stay home and take care of the homestead. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can't find too much fault in what he did, but again, you know, he that was the reality of it. I, um, I think Davy Crockett is kind of unique. Bowie's a little bit like this as well, but he was, he really did understand that he was a bigger than life character. He was a, a legend in his own time. Um, and I think the John Lee Hancock Alamo movie from a couple of years ago did a good job of that. Davy, uh, uh, Davy, Bo- Crockett is played by, um, um, Davy Crockett is played by Billy Bob Thornton. And there's a lot, there's a scene in the movie when they're surrounded and, and, uh, the DeGuayos playing and, Crockett's talking to Travis, and he says, uh, "You know, old David, Cro- old David Crockett, he might, he might have slipped over this wall and taken off, but that Davy Crockett feller, he's not going to let me." Oh. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, the you know, he he, they did a good job of portraying that even he understood that his the character had become bigger than the person. Yeah, well, and he certainly used that to his advantage. We talked about that right. in the the second episode you know when he was in congress and how he used those tall tales to um get what he wanted mm-hmm. but i think that's that's you know uh something that stood out to me in the last episode and stands out in all the episodes like i said this his writing is actually quite lovely i mean for somebody who is essentially raising himself in the wilderness like he his writing has a a character and a flair and obviously in person just the history of him he was a great storyteller. And so I think that that aspect of, you know, that aspect of, of his life just carried through in everything. And I think, you know, he was he was his own best PR, but it also in the way kind of condemned him to live under the shadow of Davy Crockett. But uh, but that being said, David Crockett was apparently a fierce fighter and an amazing marksman. So I wouldn't mess with either of those guys. I think we've done it before, but, uh, you know, name a favorite Crockett. Favorite Crockett? Well, I, the one in the books, because that's the only one I really knew. My favorite is uh, 
uh, Brian Keith in the 13 Days to Glory movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, you may know him as the dad from The Parent Trap, but he actually was uh, Davy Crockett in that movie in the 1980s. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there and just say John Wayne. John <laughs> the man, the Duke. The Duke did it right by me. Well, this has been an amazing look at some major characters in Texas history, and we're glad you guys have stuck with us through it. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to Brainstaple and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. If you want to support the show... Go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast. It's just that easy. Special thanks to our friend Paul Schmel for helping to write and research this episode. Follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. This show is awesome. So tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes because that helps us to find new listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas... Texas wants you anyway.